It is the early 1960s, and it is the dawn of modern-day vaccines. What is the story behind much of the protection we have today? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. I'm joined today by Dr. Meredith Wadman, author of The Vaccine Race, Science, Politics, and the Human Cost of Defeating Disease. So, Dr. Wadman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Salk and Sabin were developing polio vaccines, and I think a lot of people in America recognize those names. What are some of the things we don't know about the polio vaccines? Oh, wow. There's a lot that's sort of back in the mists of history now, but I think one of the really important and overlooked pieces of the story is that when polio vaccine was first developed, it was developed in rhesus monkey kidneys and that these monkeys had to be imported by their tens of thousands and slaughtered to produce the substrate for developing the vaccine. The salt vaccine, which came to market in 1955, was a killed vaccine. So they essentially would use primary monkey kidney cells, generate lots of virus, kill it with formaldehyde, and inject it. And then came Sabin's vaccine, in, which began to be licensed in 1961, also made in, in monkey kidney cells, but a live vaccine. It emerged and became public in 1961 that there was a silent monkey virus. In fact, there were many silent monkey viruses inhabiting these monkey kidney cells, but there was one that was carcinogenic. It killed 70% of laboratory hamsters in one particular experiment by an unsung heroine, in my view, of American medical science, a woman named Bernice Eddy, who worked in polio vaccine safety at NIH, and she was actually punished, basically, for her discovery, but she was right, and eventually uh, they moved away to another species that didn't harbor this virus, SV40. But that, to me, is sort of incredible when you look at it from our 21st century perspective, that dealing with a possible carcinogenic virus in the substrate that is being used to make the vaccines that, that's being injected into basically every American school kid is, is just uh, extraordinary. So I think kind of being on the other side of the AIDS epidemic, I think any of us would kind of take pause to say we're taking substrate from a monkey and we're going to inject it into human beings, I think, right now. And I think I think that probably led to a lot of the interesting work at the Wistar Institute. So what was the Wistar Institute? The Wistar Institute was this sort of hoary medical and anatomical biological research institute tucked away on the grounds of the University of Pennsylvania, but independent of it. And it had been founded by a, a wealthy Philadelphia family, basically as a storehouse for anatomical specimens in the late 19th century. But by 1960-ish, it was moribund. It was sort of dying of neglect. And this polio vaccine pioneer, another who was in the race with Salk and Sabin to make live polio vaccine, in fact, with Sabin, I should say, Hilary Kaprowski, a Polish emigre who was a larger-than-life character, came and basically revitalized the Institute and brought in world-class biologists from Europe and elsewhere and gave it a, a new lease on life. And that was where these human fetal cells were developed in the early 60s by a young biologist named Leonard Hayflick, and they would go on and become a really important substrate for vaccine making. So the WI-38, how did that come about? 
Oh, my gosh, it's such a tangled tale. It begins, in essence, with Hayflick developing some fetuses that he received from across the street at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania after elective abortions, several fetal cell lines, discovering that they, unlike virtually every human cell line to that point that had been developed in the lab, had mutated and become long-lived, immortal, as it were, and cancer, in effect. What happened with Hayflick's fetal cells, as he observed them, is that they died after a period of time. And he turned conventionalism on its head, which said cells and culture should never die, or if they do, the experimentalist is screwing up somehow. Well, he proved and would go on to really make his name with this discovery that normal cells, non-cancer cells in culture are in fact mortal and will die after about 50 uh, generations. Therefore, they were looked at as safer for vaccine making by a good number of scientists who embraced them for that purpose. However, after developing these initial cell lines with human fetuses from, from the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, Hayflick lost them all in a freezer failure. He then was able to obtain through connections that Kaprowski had at the Karolinska Institute of Nobel Prize fame in Stockholm, a fetus from a Swedish woman who had aborted because she just couldn't handle another baby. Her husband was a drunk and so on and on. And he had obtained, you know, sort of packed on wet ice the lungs of this fetus. And he went ahead and derived the WI38 cell line, as it's known to this day. Because these normal cells divide about 50 times in culture, but because if you freeze them, they stop dividing and then pick up where they left off after you saw them, be that you know, one year from now or 10 years or 50 years from now, he created a supply of cells, 800 tiny vials filled with 3 million or so cells each, that was for practical purposes infinite in terms of vaccine making. And they are used to this day in vaccine making. So can you tell us about the rubella epidemic of 1964? Oh, it was devastating. Again, lost in the midst of history. This was an unprecedented epidemic that infected, and this is an estimate from CDC, which is the best we have, at least 13 million Americans. And there was no vaccine. In fact, the virus had only been isolated a couple of years earlier. And so you had all these women of childbearing age, because rubella, as all of you will know, also known as German measles, causes a mild disease in children or adults. But if it infects a pregnant woman, it's just devastating to the fetus much of the time, particularly at exquisitely vulnerable windows during the first trimester. So you had in 1964 and 65, 20,000 kids born blind, deaf, mentally disabled, with heart defects or combinations of, of these uh, problems in the United States and many, many more around the world because this was a worldwide epidemic. So after that happened, there was a huge pressure from the public, from Congress, to get a rubella vaccine and to get it before the next epidemic came around because they came periodically about every six years. So the clock was ticking toward 1970, and the race to develop that rubella vaccine is the race at the heart of the book, the vaccine race.
and the WI-38 was involved in some of the rubella vaccines that were being worked on, correct? Correct. Well, in particular, one vaccine that was being worked on by this academic scientist and pediatrician, Stanley Plotkin, at the Wistar Institute. And it was this David and Goliath struggle because he was basically on his own at the Wistar. And the big drug companies who saw this huge market, because CDC was certainly going to recommend a successful rubella vaccine as a routine childhood vaccination, you had the big companies like Merck and, well, today it's called GlaxoSmithKline, racing to get uh, a, a rubella vaccine before 1970. They were all using animal cells. However, Plotkin, because his colleague Len Hayflick down the stairs and around the corner in the Wistar had developed the WI-38 human fetal cells, used those as his mini vaccine factory and developed what ended up being the most immunogenic and the safest of all the vaccines that were developed in the 1960s. However, politics got in the way and his vaccine was completely sidelined. I don't want to give away the whole story, but suffice it to say that it didn't stay on the sidelines forever. It is a good tale. If you're just tuning in, this is ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm talking with Dr. Meredith Wadman author of The Vaccine Race, Science, Politics, and the Human Cost of Defeating Disease. I think one of the things that kind of was very interesting to me in the book is all the vaccine studies that were happening in homes for disabled children. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that really seems anachronistic, I think, in our today's day and age. Yeah, this was terribly sobering, and it was at the heart of so much of my research on this book. Stanley Plotkin, when he developed this rubella vaccine at the Wistar, tested it in what was known as the St. Vincent's Home for Children, which was an orphanage run by the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And the first kids ever to get that vaccine were one- and two-year-old toddlers in this orphanage. Now, it needs to be said that Plotkin was not some kind of medical outlier. All medics virtually in the sort of 20 years after World War II routinely used institutional populations, powerless people, prisoners, pregnant women in charity wards, the orphanage in Philadelphia, and on and on. This was considered routine practice, and it wasn't until a real upheaval in medical ethics in the mid-1960s, brought on by a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine by an anesthesiologist at Harvard named Henry Beecher, who kind of said, the emperor has no clothes here. It wasn't until that paper came out that basically U.S. regulators turned on a dime and said, you have to have informed consent. You cannot use these institutionalized populations and so on. And a whole new era in research ethics was ushered in. And can you also talk about the third arm of the rabies vaccine, which seemed to be part of WI-38? lineage. Oh, yes. The rabies vaccine that was developed with WI-38 was so far superior to what was available in the mid-60s when, incidentally, there was a terrible rabies problem uh, among wild animals in the United States. And there were regular deaths of oftentimes sort of kids doing backyard camping, horrible rabies deaths, because the vaccine that was available was only marginally effective, and sometimes it was more dangerous to get the vaccine. Well, I shouldn't say more dangerous than getting the disease, but it was a terrible sort of Hobson's choice because the vaccine itself could have 
fatal side effects. And so along comes Hilary Kapowski at the Wistar, uses the cells, WI-38, developed by Lynn Hayflick, to make a far superior and far safer and far more effective rabies vaccine, which was tested in this startlingly successful trial among Iranian villagers in remote areas in the mid-70s where routinely they would be attacked by rabid wolves. And the, the results were just fantastic, and that vaccine was on the market uh, within a couple of years. So I also think one of the things that really stood out to me about the book was kind of the two political fronts. And the one political front on, you know, which vaccine was being chosen, which seemed often capricious. And the second was, you know, that once upon a time, you know, people find out years later that this vaccine was derived from cells from an abortion done in the 1960s. And suddenly people are kind of up in arms that this vaccine is the product of something that they don't want to be part of. Can you talk to the second controversy? Absolutely. There's a core of people who strongly oppose abortion for moral or ethical or religious reasons who really refused to take or try to refuse to take uh, vaccines developed in fetal cells, uh, of which there are a significant number in the vaccine, the childhood vaccine schedule, and it's a completely consistent ethical position one can imagine. However, there's not a lot of choice. For one thing, the MMR vaccine, the R element being rubella, is made in the WI-38 cells and Merck does not make it separately. Thus, if one wants to vaccinate one's child against measles and mumps but not rubella, that's an impossibility in this country. But there was a very hardcore group of abortion opponents who lobbied Merck about the turn of the 21st century to develop what they called an ethical vaccine. And that just was a non-starter with the company. They then wrote to the Vatican and said, would you pronounce this vaccine unethical and say that Catholics shouldn't take it? And a couple of years went by, the Pontifical Academy of Life considered it from the point of moral philosophy, and they eventually came back in 2005 and said, while we consider this vaccine an evil, we consider it a greater evil not to take the vaccine because of the risk at which it puts the community from contagious diseases. They were speaking of the MMR vaccine in that context. And then through all these political wranglings, WI-38, can you talk about how it finished up with regard to polio and rubella and rabies vaccines? Sure. Well, in terms of rabies, the WI-38 vaccine has largely been replaced oftentimes by more economical means of producing rabies vaccine. The technology has evolved, and, and with that, that particular rabies vaccine is not in widespread use. The R component, as I mentioned, of MMR is still made in WI-38 cells by Merck every year at its factory just northwest of Philadelphia and given not only to all American toddlers or all of those who are vaccinated, but also shipped to 40 countries around the world. It has become the vaccine that, well, for number one, has wiped out rubella in the Western Hemisphere and is used, you know, far beyond uh, North and South America. Polio vaccine, less so. Again, it has been made most often in other substrates. So as a historian kind of working in vaccines and kind of a lot of your research dealt with some of the horrors of these illnesses, what would you be saying to the people who are kind of non-vaccine believers with regard to, you know, if we stopped vaccinating kids against rubella, if we stopped having a rabies vaccine, if we stopped having a polio vaccine, what do you think would be unleashed on this planet? 
Well, I think we would simply go back to the bad old days. I mean, no polio vaccine. You you can probably remember, or maybe you're too young, but, you know, the days of iron lungs and of kids not being allowed to go to swimming pools in the summer by their terrified mothers for fear that they would catch polio. Kids dying with some regularity or being brain damaged by measles or deafened by mumps. I mean, these were realities, and I think vaccines in some way are a bit of a victim of their own success because the lack of visible diseases or infectious diseases in our communities allows people to be complacent. I don't think that complacency was there when these vaccines first came on the market. Parents wanted them and with good reason. Well, it was a wonderful book and there's lots of twists and turns we didn't even talk about in our interview. I'd like to thank Dr. Meredith Wadman for being on the show today. The book is The Vaccine Race, Science, Politics, and the Human Cost of the Feeding Disease. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.